As you are seated, just want to add my welcome to Andrew this morning. I'm Brian White. I'm the senior pastor here. I know we have several visitors this morning. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, We're going to be looking in just a little bit at that reading from Revelation 5, which I believe, if you're using any of the the Bibles that are in those seats as you came in, is on page uh, 1030 or 1030. So if you have one of those nearby, if you would uh, maybe open up to that or in your own Bible, keep Revelation 5 open. We're going to be looking at it in just a couple minutes. Before we turn to that, let's go ahead and pray as we get started. Father, we do love you, and we declare, Lord, that you, this morning as we gather, you're real. We're not talking to just thin air, uh, but you're the living God, and you are guiding us now, Lord, through the power of your Spirit as we open your word. Please, in this time, would you give us a sense of the work that you're doing in us, the work that you're doing in the world, and how you want us to be connected to it as a gathered people of God. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so around 1792, there were two pastors in England that were getting ready to move to India and to give their life away in India, the rest of their lives for the sake of of Christian missions. One of them was a guy that I doubt any of you have ever heard of. His name was John Thomas. The other one was someone that most of you probably have not heard of, though I know, especially for some of our Baptist friends in the room, um, that you probably have heard of. That's William Carey. About a year before that, William Carey and some other men, including John Thomas, had formed the the Baptist Missionary Society. Uh, Another person that was a part of this was named John Ryland. And as William Carey and John Thomas were getting to walk away, really to, I mean, imagine this late 18th century, moving across the world. They're going on a boat to a place they've never known, they've never seen. They probably couldn't be guaranteed they're going to survive the trip. They're going to give the rest of their lives there. Listen to the way that John Ryland characterizes this conversation that was taking place about this thing that they were about to undertake. He says this, recalling this. Our undertaking to India really appeared to me on its commencement to be like, to be somewhat like a few men. Now listen to this image that he gives us. Just picture this. Who were deliberating about the importance of penetrating into a deep mine which had never been explored and we had no one to guide us. And while we were thus deliberating, Carey, he's talking about William Carey here, as it were said, quote, well, I will go down if you will hold the rope. Then he goes on, this is Ryland writing, but before we went down, or I should say before he went down, he, as it seemed to me, took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect that, quote, while we lived, we should never let go of the rope. So I will go down if you'll hold the rope. And if you've studied the story of William Carey, you know that as he and John Thomas went, that's what happened. Uh, Carey goes, gives the rest of his life away in India 41 years, there were others 
that stayed behind, that did just that. They held the rope. One of them was Andrew Fuller, who I know some of you have learned about. Uh, He was someone that was holding that rope by way of preaching sermons and churches about foreign missions, by writing essays, pamphlets, speaking around the region, doing everything they could to support those that had gone across the world and to put on people's conscience the need to take the gospel to the nations. I will go down if you'll hold the rope. Now, if, you, if you're someone that's new with us today, or if you happen to be watching us online for the first time, you should know we're coming to the last part of a series that we've been in called The Mission of God. And we've been talking about the fact that when you look at what the Bible says about human history, it has shown that God is at work in the world on this mission to what the Bible calls the nations, seeking out people to restore them unto himself that they might be able to uh, worship him and enjoy him forever. In the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about specifically what's the way that God's going to do this through his people. Because we saw that in the Great Commission, Jesus is calling his people to be a part of it. Now, last week, I got to say, I said that we would think about this concretely both today on a local level and on a global level. And as I was thinking and praying about that this week, I just realized, one, it is World Mission Sunday today as Andrew was saying at the beginning of our service, which means churches all around uh, the country and all around our province were thinking about this, an Anglican church, this taking the gospel to the nations. And in light of that and really how much time this deserves, that's what we're going to focus on today. In other words, we want to be thinking about this question. For us here, okay, so for us uh, Christians that are living in Birmingham or wherever you might happen to be online, when it comes to this thing in the Bible about the gospel, of Jesus Christ going to every tribe and to every tongue, what role is he calling us to play? I mean, how do you play a role in that if you live in Alabama, if you live in the Bible Belt? What if you've never been out of the country? How do you play a role in this thing that we're being called to? And here's how we're going to explore this question this morning. We're going to take three how questions to the Bible with this one. We're just going to remember, this is a quick refresher. First, how does this mission end that we've been talking about, this mission that God's on, been to the nations? We're going to go to Revelation 5 and be reminded of that. Second, we're going to go to Romans 15 and be reminded, how is it carried out? How is this mission end? How is it carried out? And then finally, how are we, how are people like you and me called to be involved, no matter what role we might be playing? So again, how does it end? How is it carried out? In, in what way is he inviting and actually calling all Christians to play a part in this thing that is taking the message of Jesus Christ to the nations, which I don't know about you, feels really big, really overwhelming, really intimidating. What's that look like? That's where we're going. So we're going to start first with that question, how's the mission end? And again, just to recap, we, we've been on this journey looking at this promise of God taking the message about him to all people through all time. We we said the starts in Genesis all the way up through Revelation. At the beginning of this series, we looked and we had just a a short glimpse at the finish line looking at Revelation 22. Okay, today we're going to look at another passage that relates to this in Revelation 5. Now, remember, if you haven't studied Revelation before, and I know for, for some of us it can feel like a really overwhelming 
book. Remember, this is being written by John. Okay, so the writer of the gospel. He's written three other books in the New Testament. He's writing to the seven churches in Asia about this vision or series of visions that he has. In John chapter four, you get there and there's this, this vision that he has in the throne room. So there's God on the throne and surrounded by these 24 elders and the, the spirits and living creatures. And then we're gonna see in just a second, when we get to Revelation five, there's somebody else in the room and that's the lamb. So if you, have, if you have your Bible in front of you, look with me at verse one as we read about this. The lamb, of course, being Jesus himself. Verse one, John says he sees God holding a scroll. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now again, if you've read Revelation, you know there's all sorts of symbolism and, and imagery going on in this sort of apocalyptic literature. What's going on with the scroll? The scroll on it is written. We're gonna kind of understand uh, later in, in Revelation and starting about Revelation 6, really God's plans for the future. So the victories that are gonna take place and frankly and honestly, the, the judgment that's gonna take place against people that reject him and that reject the gospel. And in verse two, this angel comes and says, who's worthy to open the scroll? Who's over to break the seals, open the scroll? And, and this, this idea of who could be worthy is one of the most important themes in this passage. And at first, there's no one, says in heaven and earth, who's able to open it, to look into it. And we know that's a problem because if, if, if this cannot be opened, then ultimately in some ways, God's purposes, including his purposes, for the nations, everything that he's said he's gonna do, they cannot unfold. And so what does John start doing? If you've read this before, in verse four, John starts crying and he's weeping. But then what happens in verse five? One of the elders tells him that there's a lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He's conquered so he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And then in verse six, John sees not, there's not a lion, there's a lamb. And the lamb looks as if it were slain. So, so the lamb takes the scroll from the right hand of God. And when he does, this is where we're gonna start looking at this more closely. Look at the way everyone around them breaks in a song. Verse nine. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So it starts out, who's, the, who's worthy to open the scroll? The only one that turns out to be worthy is the lamb. Why is the lamb worthy? The answer is in verse 9. Four. Remember, whenever you see a four in scripture, you heard that old adage, what's the four there for? Why is he worthy to open the scroll? Because he was slain. He died, he gave his life. This is what we know what Jesus, as the lamb does on the cross. And what, what did he do in doing that? Going back to nine again, 
and by your blood, you ransom people for God. Through his blood, through what, what Jesus calls the new covenant of his blood. I'll say those words here at, at the table in just a little bit as we gather around it. What did he do with that blood? He ransomed people. He ransomed them. Why did he have to ransom people? We talked about that last week, didn't we? For anyone that was here, we were in Romans 10. We were, we were looking at the need for the gospel to be preached so that it could be responded to. And we saw the reason that it has to be responded to is because ultimately at the end of the day, when it comes to every tribe and language and every nation, there is not one person that can stand innocent before a holy and a righteous God. None of them, none of us, scripture is really clear, has treated him the way that we're called to in that, in that sense, or because of that, we all deserve his judgment. And, and we need ransoming. So he does that with his blood. Look at verse nine and see who he ransoms. Look at the way, it could have just said, man, and, and you've ransomed everybody. Look at, look at how detailed it gets. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Does it get any broader than that? Any more specific than that? You, you, from, by your blood, every, every tribe, every language, people, nation, all of them, all, all of these people, people from all those groups in history, he's ransomed them. And what are they going to do? What is even the purpose behind his ransoming them? He's making them a kingdom. And what are they going to do? They're going to serve y'all, we, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're part of this crowd. We're going to serve him as priests. Good news for, for most of y'all. You think it's good news? You're not wearing one of these if you're wondering, is that what heaven's going to be like? Man, no, you don't have to wear one of these. Amen. I can bear witness to that right there. Okay, it's not, not easy to eat these things, nor exercise for that matter. What are, we're all going to be serving him as the people of God. In fact, this is amazing. What, what are we going to do as priests? We sh- as priests, we shall reign on the earth. Now, think about this. What God's saying is that the nations are going to do originally what God told the first two people to do, Adam and Eve, going back to Genesis 1, 27 and 28. Remember what he told them to do. They were supposed to come. They were supposed to fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it, to rule over it. And that's now what God's doing with his restored and gathered people. They are coming, they are redeemed, healed, and now they are reigning under him in his new world, in his what you could call his new creation. That's that's where all this is headed. So this is how, in summary, the mission ends, y'all, that we've been talking about. Again, we've said, some people look at history and say, there's no point, there's no direction, everything's an accident. The world is what it is, and, and um, uh, there's nothing we can do about it. There's no meaning, no purpose. We've said, no, there is meaning. There is one guiding it. God has said, I'm at work in the world. He came to Abram towards the very beginning and said, I'm going to bless the world through youth in you. The nations will be blessed. That promise, is continue, uh, that promise continues throughout the Old Testament, in the prophets, in the Psalms, Uh, In the life of Jesus, so the nations are going to be gathered by God, the prophets and the Psalms are saying. Uh, Jesus comes, remember, 
It says he comes from the nations. Remember at the beginning of Matthew's gospel and his genealogy? It says when you look at Jesus' background, it's got Jews and Gentiles. So the nation's blood, it says, is running through his veins. He's going to die for the nations. He's going to make that down payment with his blood. And then after he's resurrected, what's he going to do? He's going to come to the nations that he's already gathered, and he's going to send them to reach the rest. He says, I'm calling you to go and make disciples of all nations. Why? So we can all be gathered under him, under his good lordship, and that we can rule and reign in his redeemed world. That's where everything's going, everybody. So that's how the mission ends. Number two, how's it carried out? And this is not, by the way, for anyone wondering, this is not a question about the means of how it's carried out. You know, because we already know the answer is, in, in a sense, through making disciples, through the proclamation of the gospel. We talked about that a lot last week. This question of how it's carried out is not about means. It's ultimately about strategy. How do we go about this? Because one of the interesting things, you look at the, uh, the writings of Paul, you see um, Paul was very smart. He was intentional, he was thoughtful, and he was strategic in the way that he went about doing the work that he did. You see this, for example, in the passage from Romans 15. So I want to ask, if you do have those Bibles from the seats, now turn to 950, or in your own Bible, or on your maybe your device, pull up Romans 15. This is a passage that is just teeming with gospel strategy. And it's, it's near the end of Romans. Paul's summarizing a lot of the things that he's already told us about including his work to the Gentiles, okay, to those outside of Israel, to the nations. In verse 17, he says this. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Stop there. So here's here's Paul. By the power of the Spirit of God, through signs and wonders, he has sought out the Gentiles, brought them to faith, to obedience, inward indeed. He's thankful for this. He's proud of it, not in a way that we would consider inappropriately proud. He says, this is in Christ Jesus he's proud. He knows this is only possible through Jesus. And then notice how it continues in 19. So that, from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. All the way. I fulfilled that. If, if you're trying to imagine where, where's Illyricum, um, picture an area, if, if Italy's that kind of boot, uh, picture northeast of that across the waters right in that area, what today is around uh, modern-day Albania. I have filled in all of this area, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now, what is he saying? He is not saying, um, I've given it my all, and now every person that's in this area has now become a believer of Jesus. It's not what he says when he says he's fulfilled the ministry of the gospel. What he means is that by going, especially the larger cities in these areas, Okay, by preaching the gospel, by making disciples, by establishing churches, by raising up and appointing leaders in those churches, by equipping them, what he has done is 
put in the, the time and the energy and the infrastructure to create a dynamic, whereas now most people living in these areas have, some, have access to someone that is a part of what's now called the way. That's a Christian. That's a follower of Jesus. So all, all the infrastructure is in place, so that can take place. And now Paul can move on to other places where those people don't exist. Look at what he says, verse 20. And thus, okay, having done all these things, I make it my ambition, present tense. Now, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. And then he quotes from Isaiah 52, 15 here. But as it's written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard of him will understand. So I've done this stuff that God called me to do. You remember he's called, we saw that last week on, the, on that Damascus road. He's gone out, he's been faithful. He's, he's poured out himself as a drink offering, he says in Philippians. And now I'm going to the places where you, you mention the name Jesus. You talk about Jesus of Nazareth, people look at you and they shrug their shoulders and say, who? Who's Jesus? These people, are today what missiologists or what people that are incredibly gifted in and trained in studying missions call unreached people groups. I know that's something I think we've talked about here before, but I just want to refresh our memories real quick. If, and if you're new, if that's a phrase that you're not familiar with, just bear with me here, I'll explain it. As we're talking about people groups, we're talking about, obviously, groups of people that are distinct from others particularly by ethnic or linguistic boundaries. And here's how one uh, organization called the Joshua Project, I'm going to share more about them in just a moment. Here's how they define them. This is a group among whom there is no indigenous or local or native community of believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize those within the group without without outside assistance. So these are these, these groups, unreached people groups, where there are, there's not enough presence of Christians. There's not, frankly, probably any structures for Christians, where if somebody else doesn't come in in some way from the outside, nobody there is going to hear about the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it means that they're unreached. And Paul knew that this area from Jerusalem to Lyricum This effectively had become a reach place. So he knew he now needed to go to a new place where in his words, Christ had not been named. And why? Because again, he knew if the nations are ultimately going to respond, if they're going to be gathered by God, they're going to be present in this moment. They need to respond to the gospel. They need to to put their faith in Jesus Christ, which means they need to hear about him. And in order to hear about him, somebody's got to go to them. Whereas it says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. That's why he decides to go to the places where Jesus hasn't been named. There are unreached people then. There are unreached people now. And as the Joshua Project says, and they do a huge amount of research and stats on this, they estimate of the 17,000 different people groups in the world today. I mean, if you just break down 
demographically, our world, there would be 17,000 people groups, 7,400 of them would be considered unreached. 7,400, again, where if, if you were to use the word, if you were to say Jesus, someone would look at you and say, I have no idea who or what you're talking about. Now, if I understood what they say on their website, right, that means there are almost at least in those 7,400 groups, 2.2 billion people with virtually no access to the gospel. No access. Can Can you imagine us being in that situation? Our friends, our family members, the people that we are closest with, our neighbors. Can you imagine anyone being in a situation where they don't even have the ability to respond to the gospel because they can't hear the gospel. And unless somebody goes to them, they're never going to hear the gospel. So that's number two. How is this mission going to be carried out? How is the, how is the mission that God's onto the world going to be carried out? It's going to be carried out through people hearing about Jesus, and they're going to either hear about him by the Christians that are naturally around them or the Christians that have not been naturally around them, but that other Christians have sent to them. That's how he's going to do it. And so finally, we're going to focus on this just for the last few minutes. How, how are we called as Christians to be involved? What in the world can, can you or I do to be a part of, in some way, God reaching these people among whom Jesus has not been named? And I want to go back to the story from William Carey for just a second, because I can't imagine an image that is more biblical, that, that every one of us, is called to play a role. And we are called to either go, to descend into the mine, to go, or to hold the rope. I will go down if you'll hold the rope. I said last week, or I think maybe it was two weeks ago, and as I've heard before, it's been said before, when it comes to this question in Christian obedience, you can be a goer, a sender, or we can disobey. Those are the three options that we have. So what what does that mean for us as we think about what can feel like this overwhelming question? If we're called to be goers or senders, I just want to add one caveat first. Um, We may be both goers and senders at different times or seasons of our lives. So it's not as if God is exclusively calling each one of us to be only a goer or only a sender. Some people are going to go and at times, they're, they're going to be called back and, and remain, and, and frankly, just senders for the rest of their lives. Other people are going to be called to be primarily senders. They're going to periodically go, maybe check in on those who have gone. But what's this look like? Let's, let's ask the first question. What's it look like to be a goer? What this means is that there are people, there are men and women and, and people that are married, single, there are people that God is raising up and that ultimately after uh, times of discernment and preparation and, and training ultimately are going to sent because they're being called by God to go and take the gospel to unreached peoples that have no access to it currently. That's what it looks like. Maybe they're, they're called to go and be a part of the 14 million Nandi people who live in Saudi Arabia. No access to the gospel there. They are part of the 10.7 million Ansari people that live in India. 
Maybe you live among them. Now, most of these places, it's really hard to go to them. It's risky. They're at risk to your health because of lack of resources, healthcare, maybe persecution. Um, there's, it's risky just in terms of your freedom. You could get arrested. In some places, you could be killed. But, but for people that are called to be goers, God puts such a burden on them. For a lot of them, it's something that they never asked for nor saw coming. He puts such a burden on them, but for, for them to do anything else but do that and but go just feels like disobedience. They, they can't help themselves. And with that in mind, I want to address maybe two of you particular groups in here. One is for some of our younger people, okay, for the teenagers in the room, you've got what seems like the rest of your lives ahead of you, and it is very possible the place that God's going to call you is maybe going to be in Birmingham, Alabama for the rest of your life, and he's going to call you to be a sender. That might be the case. It might also be the case that God is going to call you to, in, in such an unexpected way, go and walk a very different path than you expected when you were growing up in school and to give your life away amongst people that you have never heard of before. That's a possibility. I wanna be careful. Neither of them is more holy. In each of those cases, you have to be obedient to what God's called you to. But every Christian has to acknowledge these are, these are on the table for all of us. No one gets the right to stare God in the face and say, no. You might do that for some of you. For some of you, you've walked a lot of life. Okay, maybe you're in a season right now of retirement. You, you are financially independent and you are sharp you are able-bodied. You've got at least one to two more decades left where you're going to be those things. And on one hand, God might call you to be here, to invest in your church family here, in the lives of family and friends and in other things, maybe even unreached peoples nearby. He might also call you to a place to give the last decades of your life to a group of people that even when you hear it out loud, you don't know how to type it into Google to learn where they live. Okay, because you, you don't know how to spell it, that you would have never pictured, never pictured the first time you made a contribution to your 401k or your IRA. You never pictured the golden years of your life looking like this, but God might call you to do it. Again, is God calling all people to do that? Not necessarily. No, he's, he's not calling all people to do that. What he is asking us is to have open hands and open hearts of faithfulness and willingness before him. That's what it might look like to be a goer. How about as a sender? I'm going to wrap up with this. What does it look like to hold the rope? One thing that we do, and I'm going to mention these. I know some of y'all, forgive me for my time spent in England, but I can't get over the alliteration that they use, they use there to help us remember things. One way to think about it is that we can be a people that pray, and that partner, and then one more I'll share in just a second. First, we can be a people that pray. Jesus says in Luke 10, 2, and if you know this, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. One of the ways that we participate this, and those of us who are senders, is that we pray regularly for God to be raising up men and women, to reach these people. Some of you are like, I don't even know where to begin to do that. Let me tell you how we can help. One thing we're gonna do is 
besides an unusual prayers of the people for today that a lot of churches in the ACNA are using, we're going to be praying for a different unreached people group every week during our prayers of the people, just moving forward. So we don't forget. Another thing, um, does anyone ever use one of these? Okay, if you're wondering about unreached peoples, there's an app for that. Okay, no kidding. There, there is an app called Unreached of the Day. Here is a guy. This guy is part of the Azeri in Armenia. And it has all the statistics about his people group. 15,000 of them, 0.0% Christian. And among those, 0.0% Bible believing. It's a predominantly Muslim area. This would be a great thing to do. If, if, you, if you are spending more time on social media today than if you don't have 30 seconds to look at this guy in the face and pray for him or his people in the morning, it's something to think about. Maybe it's something to pull out if you're praying with your kids at night before they go to bed. Hey, let's just pray for one group of people. That's, what, that's one thing that we can do. Second, we pray, and I should add, we, we pray for the people that are already there. We pray for the men and women that are already serving. We can also partner. Philippians 4.18 Paul acknowledges the fact missionary work often requires financial support. And he writes about this to the Philippians. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent me. I want to remind you, uh, last year we set apart $10,000 for giving to a mission sending agency called Anglican Frontier Missions. We gave that away when we had this unusual opportunity to give five $20,000 gifts through this unusual gift the Lord had given us. We gave them a $20,000 check. We can support them financially. And I just want to add, uh, for some of us, we are conscious. You know, you might say, well, I get to St. Peter's, and so I'm a part of that. That's true. Praise be to God. Okay? But for some of us, and I know this for myself, maybe taking the initiative and giving in a way that's even independently of us can also be really helpful for this being on our conscience. So we can partner financially, pray, we partner. Then I just want to add this. What we don't do is we don't pretend unreached people don't exist. We don't pretend they don't exist, or we don't pretend that if they don't believe in Jesus, it doesn't really matter. And if they don't have the opportunity to hear the gospel, that it doesn't really matter anyway. We cannot pretend that. And I was, it's one of the hardest things I had to wrestle with in preparing for this this week is, does my life demonstrate to others that I'm conscious of the nations? If, if someone else were to pull me aside, if they were to be able to hear secretly with some sort of magical device, my prayers to God during the day or in the morning, if they were to look at my bank statement, would they see a man who is aware that there are people around the world who still need to hear the gospel? I shudder to think of what the answer to that would be. It's, it's, it's very difficult. And, and what that means is I know for myself, I need instruments, vehicles, other ways like deciding to go through American uh, Anglican Frontiers missions or something else of contributing towards something in an ongoing way that helps me pray, that helps me be involved. And so can we just pray as we wrap this up? What might God be willing to do through us individually as a church family for a group of people that are willing to give away their entire lives for the sake of the gospel going to the nations. Whether or not we're someone that goes down, whether or not we're holding the rope, that again, in the end, he would do this thing that he's been claiming he's going to do with or without us 
but he's calling us to be a part of it, reaching out to people from every tribe and every tongue that they would be healed, restored, and that in the end of all time, they, like we, would get to be a part of this thing that is being a part of the nations ruling and reigning under his good power that we would get to enjoy him forever and that he, friends, would get all the glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this journey that we've been on and thank you that there is a purpose to the world and work that you're doing in the world as you enter into a very dark place and you are healing it. You are giving people life. Lord, please, would you give us clarity as we go about our days as to how you want each one of us in our own ways to play a part to this thing that is taking the news about you to the peoples around the world that have never heard the name of Jesus. We ask this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.